latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. For this edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we're heading underground. We're going deep under the soil surface to concentrate on one of the major benefits of no-tilling when it comes to improving soil health. Today's agenda is worms. Earthworms, redworms, nightcrawlers, and other kinds of worms and the impact they have on no-tilled soils. Forgive me for saying so, but Eileen Kladivko, an agronomy professor at Purdue, has worms on the brain. She's addressed the topic as a national no-tillage conference speaker, where attendees have come to think of her as the godmother of worms. Eileen's other areas of expertise involve soil physics, soil biology, and soil management. Her specific research topics include tile drainage and water quality, the interactions between earthworms, soil management, and soil physical properties. Here's Frank's fascinating and wormy conversation with Eileen. I grew up in New Jersey, in suburbia, and I'm not from a farm, but uh, our family was a, an outdoor family, and Got interested in the, the environment, and right before my senior year in high school, my dad got transferred to Ohio, so I actually graduated from high school in Ohio, and the environmental movement was really uh, starting when I was in high school, so I got interested in the environment, and Purdue had a, a program in environmental science, brand new program, and so that's actually, I came to Purdue for my bachelor's degree in environmental science. Well, that was going to be my next question. How'd you end up being a boilermaker? But I see you have two degrees from Purdue, and then you got your PhD at Wisconsin up here in our country, right? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. So I did my, my bachelor's was in environmental science at Purdue. And then, you know, I, I needed to take some ag electives. And the first ag elective I took was a soils class, and I just really fell in love with it. And so that's how I got got more and more into into soils. Uh, we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about earthworms, and I know you did some early research on it, and you haven't mm -hmm. done so much lately, but it seems to me, I've been around no-till forever, it seems like earthworms were more important in the limelight 30, 40 years ago than they are today. Do we just tend to take them for granted today? Well, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, and there's a little bit of we've realized 
I think earthworms helped awaken people to soil biology. So I would say there's a lot more interest in, in soil sure. biology overall than there was. So back in the 80s when I was uh, uh, doing some of that earthworm work, 80s and 90s, it was brand new. Uh, and so that was that was something that I felt was really, really good and important was that it alerted people to the fact that, oh, we've got all these organisms in the soil. And, of course, earthworms are one of the easiest to see. And sure. everybody knows earthworms are beneficial, so so I think people got really excited about earthworms then. But um, uh, part of it now is I think there is a broader understanding of soil bi bi biology beyond earthworms, and some of it is yeah, people get bored with the same stuff, and it's <laughs> like oh, earthworms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden, earthworms got us to where we found out there's 500 other flora species underneath the ground, huh? Exactly. Yep. Right. So, so how did you get started? You you went back to Purdue in the early '80s. What led to your interest in earthworms? So I, you know, I got onto the faculty at Purdue in in January of 1982, actually, as as an assistant professor of applied soil physics. And so one okay. of the, uh, so what I started working on at that time was. Um, uh, drainage was one item, and no-till was really a, a big item for me. So I joined forces with a couple of really experienced uh, tillage researchers that we had here, Jerry Mannering and Don Griffith. Sure. Um, and they sure. they had long-term tillage plots, meaning you know no-till, chisel, plow, ridge till. Um, and I I became a number another team member with them. And what I was contributing to what they were already doing was a lot of measurements of soil physical properties that they really didn't have time to to do. So that was my contribution. Um, but as I was doing that, you know, physical properties like aggregate stability, like water flow, like porosity, things like that. Um, as I was doing that and reading the literature, I noticed that um, some of the some of the papers from Europe and Australia and New Zealand were talking about earthworms as being a really important part of all of those things that I was trying to measure. Sure. And there weren't really any people in the U.S. at the time, uh, one with one or two exceptions, that had been looking at earthworms and tillage systems. So I thought, well, that's something that a new assistant professor, you know, that I could add to the work that's being done, and that relates to what I was interested in with water flow. Um, so that's really how I got started on, on doing earthworms was to look a little deeper at the potential impact they would have on, or that they might have on water flow in the soil and some of those other things that we were really interested in. And so basically I started reading. Um, I happened to have, there was a postdoc with another professor, um, that was here who was from New Zealand and he had done a little bit of earthworm work on his PhD in New Zealand. And so he knew some of the methods. So he and I kind of teamed up and we started doing earthworm work on the long-term tillage, no tillage plots. Um, and, you know, I met some of the earthworm specialists, uh, went to a conference in, in Europe where they was a whole earthworm <laughs> conference and, and, you know, learned a lot more about uh, earthworms from that conference as well. So, but basically it was, yes, other countries have discovered that earthworms are really important. We haven't really looked at it here. 
in no-till situations. And so I wonder whether they're important here was kind of the genesis of it. And what did you find out? Yes, they're important here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, basically, uh, the, the work really had two different thrusts, I guess you might call it. One was, first of all, are the earthworm populations different as resulting from different tillage systems. So Uh would we find more earthworms under no-till than under uh, chisel or plow, for example, as they had found in in Europe and Australia, New Zealand? So so yes, the the first thing we found was, yes, uh, you generally do have greater earthworm populations with less tillage, Um, no-till being kind of the one end of the extreme if you're just looking at tillage differences. And then the other the other thrust was what impact do those earthworms have on soil properties like infiltration and like aggregate stability or resistance to crusting and erosion? Um, and we found, as you might expect, we found that they they do help with water infiltration into the soil. Um, they do help improve aggregate stability of the soil by their burrowing and casting activity. Um, you do see roots in earthworm channels. You know, a number of a number of no-till field days in the 80s and 90s, you know, there would be the requisite soil pit and you sure. would look there sure. and you'd see nightcrawler channels going down into the subsoil and you'd see corn roots growing in those nightcrawler channels that had cast material lining those channels. So, you know, you knew that they were significant in helping improve uh, root growth and getting nutrients into the crop because of the roots growing right next to that nutrient-rich material. In a ballpark figure, how many more earthworms can you expect to no-till than you can in other tillage systems? Well, that, of course, depends where you're starting out sure. from. Um, sure. But I, I usually think if we're in a not in a pasture or something like that. If we're in a corn soybean or corn soybean wheat rotation with no-till, you might have a uh, hundred to two hundred redworms, not the nightcrawlers, per square meter, whereas with a tilled system, it may be down more like 50. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could double or or more, depending on, on how low the the tilled system is. Nightcrawlers are not very prevalent at all in tilled systems, unless they're very heavily manured. And then the nightcrawlers themselves, if you've got 20 per square meter, which is like two per square foot. I usually consider that to be a pretty good number. It, I've seen them higher, but that sure. that's already a pretty sure. good number. If you're counting middens out in the field and you and you find, you know, two or three per square foot, that's really good <laughs> for the night crawlers. Right. So earthworms prefer no-till each. What about uh, the impact of chemicals, fertilizer, herbicide? Yeah. That's what I was most concerned about when I first started, um, mm-hmm. but I I became much less concerned about it. Um, certainly, if an anhydrous band goes right next to an earthworm, it's likely going to die just because it's you know so highly concentrated. It essentially right. just burns the worm. Right. But when you're injecting anhydrous on 30-inch centers, um, you're not affecting really very much of the of the soil. I did have one grad student one year who went out and tried to count the earthworms the day before and the day after anhydrous and 
And he did find about 6% or so of the worms that he was able to see, you know, had been sure. had been killed. Sure. But on a field scale basis, that's not very much. And of course, they're continuing to reproduce. So, um, so fertilizers in general for normal crop rotations, I don't think are a problem. Herbicides, herbicides in general are also not a problem, right? Because they're meant to kill plants, not right. not animals. It's the insecticides that that are sometimes problematic, and and especially some of the corn rootworm insecticides that were used back in the 80s and and 90s. Some of them were really detrimental, and some not. Um, it's really hard to keep up with non-target effects of chemicals, given how many chemicals come out all the time. They do have to test that in order to get approved. But one of the things I I talk to people about with respect to um, insecticides is where if they are able to put it in a narrow band, you know, like in the seed slot or something like that, you're affecting much less of the soil than if you're broadcasting it over the, the whole field. So so that is one suggestion of, you know, how, how somebody might minimize the, the impact of um, insecticides if we're not sure whether that insecticide is toxic or not, is just reduce the area over which it's being applied. I had at least one farmer tell me once that he thought uh, the worms could hear the uh, anhydrous ammonia tractor coming and they'd get down deeper in the soil just uh, because they're scared of the noise. <laughs> Actually, knows? I think it's the I think it's the vibration. Actually, no, I You're think right. yes. okay. Thank you. I think I think there is something to that. It's just a matter of whether whether the burrow is still open because if the burrow is open and the and the anhydrous, you know, if the gas goes down the right. burrow then they can try to hide, but they can't. <laughs> yeah, right, right. How can no-tillers count the number of worms in their field, or do they need to do it or not worry about it? Well, counting, if you really want good counts, it, it is a lot of work. Um, and whether it's worth it or not is is questionable, depending on depending on how curious you are, what you want to know. But I can tell sure. there's the fast estimate, and then there's a more detailed count. <laughs> so. The first thing people need, do need to remember is that there's um, the night crawlers versus the shallow dwelling worms, right? So the the night crawlers, Lumbricus terrestris, we do only have one one species of those in the glaciated portion of North America, um, and that's what we commonly call night crawler. Um, it has a more or less permanent burrow, that vertical burrow that goes, you know, three feet, four feet, five feet, depending on the soil. Um, they pull those residues into the mouth of their burrow at the top. Right. Um, they right. they have casts and so on. So once once a farmer knows what a mid-in looks like and knows how to look for it, the way to estimate your nightcrawler populations is simply to count the number of middens. And sometimes that's easy. You can stand up and, and do it. But other times, if you have a lot of residue, it is a get down on your hands and knees and you know, put down a square meter or square yard or something and, and count the number of, of middens. Um, because as as they all know, if you're trying to count night crawlers, since they have a burrow, as soon as you start digging, they also will go down to the bottom of their burrow. And so you're not going to actually catch right. them. So that's that's for the night crawlers. And I would I would say, you know, anybody I would encourage anybody to kind of learn what the middens look like and then they'll somewhat jump out at you once you know what you're what you're looking for and just sure. just count them on the surface the shallow dwelling worms which there are many different species of those and 
you know, I just call them red worms or gray worms or fish worms, but there are several different species of those. Um, if you want to count them, you're basically trying to count a known area. So I would actually, you know, take a flat bottom spade and cut a square foot and go down eight or 10 inches and uh, take all that soil out, put it on a, on a tarp or in a bucket or whatever, and then sort through it by hand mm -hmm. and pick out the worms and count them. Um, that's quite a bit of work. Uh, sure. If you just want to sure. know in general, are you, do you have more worms, you know, take a shovel and if you've got a couple of worms in every shovel full, and then you go to a, a conventional field and you hardly ever see a worm, that, you know, that may be enough evidence for you to know that you've got a better earthworm population. So it really depends how, how badly people want to know how much they have and how much work they're willing to put into it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can do the calibration shovel, right? I mean, you could basically say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a big heaping shovel full and I'm going to do that in several places and see if I get two or three or four worms in a shovel and I go someplace else and I don't get any, that, that probably tells you what you want to know. Let's say we got a no-tiller out there who's, has got a lot of earthworms. He's been no-tilling for 10, 15 years. Uh, is there any benefit to, to him of finding a way to get even more earthworms? For instance, if, I, I suppose if he put on manure, that might up might increase the number of worms or not. Yeah, basically, uh, the earthworm populations I think are limited in our northern climates um, by two things. One is the cover, mm -hmm. and the other is food. So the, the no-till is providing, first and foremost, it's providing a, essentially a mulch cover. So right. it keeps the soil from drying out as fast in the spring, and it keeps the soil from freezing as fast in the, in the late fall or winter. And that gives them a chance to, uh, first of all, to reproduce longer, but also to acclimate to the, the cold weather, right? So they can move down a little deeper as it gets cold, but... If the soil is bare and we get one of those quick freezes in November, a lot of worms will just die because they didn't have a chance to get down. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's the first thing. But then to increase the, the populations further, food is really important. So that might mean um, applying manure. It might okay. mean growing cover crops. I mean, sure. growing cover crops is another way where we're basically providing more more food for them. Um, and I do know a number of farmers who, you know, talk to me about, yeah, my worms are so hungry, you know, I got to plant cover crops so that I can <laughs> still have more residue on my soil surface because they're, they're eating up all my crop residue and I, I, I need to give them more food. So, yeah, I don't think there's a, I mean, I, I think adding more food to get more worms will also get more of those other soil by soil organisms sure. that I mentioned sure. at the beginning, right? So right. anytime that we can either add organic matter like manure or grow organic matter like growing cover crops, I think is going to help the overall soil biology, not just the worms. We'll come back to Frank and Eileen in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com 
slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with the reporter's notebook fact about this interview. In my conversation with Eileen, I failed to ask one question that I jotted down in my notebook. It was about a recent award she had received called the Purdue Agricultural Spirit of the Land Grant Mission Award. This award's purpose is to recognize faculty members at Purdue for their excellence in integrating and promoting the core mission of discovery, engagement, and learning. The award highlights Eileen's research and teaching work over the years that has benefited agriculture, both nationally and internationally. This is an award that should be one of the highlights of her long-term career at Purdue, a very much deserved award and an honor she can be very proud of having earned. And now we'll get back to the conversation. Well, when you talk cover crops, our no-tillers are far ahead of everybody else. I mean, across the nation with all farmers, we're probably around 10% or so. And then our survey of our no-till farmers will show that 80% of them are using cover crops. Yeah. They've caught caught on. I I think cover crops, that's, you know, one of my other hats, of course. Sure. No, I know that. And right. and so yeah, I'm I definitely think cover crops are are great for improving soil health and soil biological activity. Let's go back to some of your early research, and I'm going to lead you into something else here. How did ridge till earthworm numbers compare to no till? Ridge till was pretty good, but was not quite as good as as no till. Um, mm-hmm. You've got, I mean, the ridge till had a lot of cover, uh, but it did also have you know, two tillage passes a year, pretty right. not very aggressive tillage, but so so they were a little bit lower than the than the no till, um, but they were still much much better than a, a plow or a chisel system. Right. Well, I'm going to lead you into my next question because we got strip till today, and you look back at what we were doing with ridge till, and we're doing some of these same things in strip till. So, how will earthworm numbers be in strip till? I would think they would be fairly similar to the ridge till in the sense of they're going to be less than no till, but yeah. they're certainly going to be much greater than um, in a chisel or a, or a plow sure. system for sure. Would the building berms in the fall affect these earthworm populations or not? Well, again, they're, they, they have residue that there's still parts of the field that are residue covered. Sure. So we actually found in, in the ridge system, my, my grad student who did a more detailed study of that found as as you expect as soon as you say it right that they're they're actually concentrated under the residue parts of the field and right rather than the berms right yeah right so i think that would be the same thing is that that they would tend to move there different earthworm species from north to south they the same or they don't matter or what North to south within the glaciated parts of North America or across all the U.S.? I'm going to let you tell me which. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I I have very little, well, I have no experience in the south. Okay? Sure. So um, within, within uh, the, so the main difference, first of all, is the glaciated part of North America versus the never glaciated part. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't really have um, a strong 
well, I have no experience. I have a little bit of knowledge as far as below the glacial line. Within the glacial line in agricultural fields, the species are pretty similar because most of them actually arrived with uh, European settlers in rootstock and, and so on. So we have species that, that mostly are associated with Europe in our agricultural areas north of the, the glacial line. I don't worry too much about the different species um, other than I want to know, is it a deep burrower, the night crawler, or is it a shallow dwelling worm? But within the shallow dwelling worms, there's like in Indiana, we've got three or four or maybe five species. They all are at least at the level that I'm interested in from a from a practical agricultural standpoint, they're all pretty similar in what they actually do. So I just want to know, is it a deep burrower or a shallow dweller? Um, the ones that are south of the glacial line, I, I there are many other species, but I can't speak real um, sure. knowledgeably sure. about any details about them. Well, I remember one, at one of the no-till conferences, Dwayne Beck talking about some 18-inch worms from South Africa that uh, nobody had seen before. He had some pictures of them. In, in the U.S.? No, he no, he. In the US? No, oh. no, he had him. You know, he was. The question came up: Should you bring him into the U.S. or not? Oh, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anybody did. Yeah, no, there's a, actually. I did part of a sabbatical in Australia back 20 years ago, and Australia has some. Um, it actually gave me a nightmare one night. I think, but it had like three or four foot long worms that are almost an inch in diameter so they're really more the size of a snake mm -hmm. uh but that it's an earthworm species that they have there and when i went on sabbatical i i asked one of the guys can you tell me where i can go see one of those and he said no i can't because they're <laughs> they're not <laughs> basically they're they're not very common they're very difficult to to find um because obviously any they're not in agricultural areas any amount of tillage would would destroy their habitat and he said he had a student one time that was trying to do her thesis on it and ended up not being able to find enough of them to to be able to do that so right. <laughs> let's say um you're you're doing chisel plowing or field cultivator and you got a compaction problem mm -hmm. if you go to the no till can the worms help you with that compaction problem or not? The worms could help with a compaction problem up to a point, right? Okay. So if it's if okay. it's really, really severe, they're not going to be able to go through it either. Mm -hmm. um, so it still may require a, <clears throat> an implement to break up some of that, that compaction. And then the worms could potentially help with not reforming that compaction. Right. Um, but there's a limit to how much they can dig through as well. Yeah. I remember years ago, people were talking about maybe we ought to buy worms and, and seed our mm -hmm. fields. And I, I've had people tell me they'd be riding with Jim Kinsella down at Lexington, Illinois, and he'd stop and pick up uh, worms off the road after a rain and toss them out in the field. And, but I don't. Yeah. Think, I don't think seeding worms ever caught on. No, no. I I had people asking me about that as well, and we we actually did a small experiment where we um, where we tried to to do that, where we put nightcrawlers in no-till fields where we had not seen any evidence of them yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and they most of the fields they survived, but they didn't really uh, thrive. We had a couple fields where within a few years we had nightcrawlers all over the place. But whether that was due to us seeding them or whether they were on the edges of the field and just hadn't quite made it in yet, um, yeah. I, I don't I don't know. Um, the yeah, it it never really <laughs> took off because I don't think there was any compelling evidence that it would work but i i know jim did that and that was you know if you could go down the county road near an alfalfa field and pick up a whole bunch of night crawlers and put them in your corn and soybean field it could potentially jump start the population going back to the food source and and cover crops are there uh, any cover crop species that worms really like or they just want to eat anything well they'll kind of eat anything but in general, legumes are probably preferred um, okay. because they're they're just a richer food source. So, legumes as opposed to just a just a grass. So, just cereal rye is probably not going to increase the populations as much as if you had a crimson clover or something like that. Um, but there's the there's the quality and there's the quantity, right? So, yeah. if you're if, depends on a lot of times. Certainly, in a corn soybean system, we can't get cover crop legumes to give us very much biomass and fit within that timing. If you've got right, right, wheat, right. wheat in your rotation, then you got more time for a, a clover to really get well established. So then it, it may, you know, may have more of an impact, but, but yeah, food preference wise, they would definitely prefer a legume to a, just a, a grass or, you know, cereal. That's interesting because we've got a lot of people planting these multi-species and, uh, Legumes don't show up that much when you got somebody planting ten or twelve different things. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, they're kind of slow growing compared to some of those other things. So, so they're they might be there, but they're just not very competitive with a, especially if you got a warm season grass in the mix. It's that just takes off. Yeah, you go back to when you started, or even before that, and one of the real guys doing earthworm research was Bill Edwards at Coshocton. And oh that, yes, that whole thing is shut down. Isn't even there anymore. Anybody yeah. in the, any research going on in the U.S. now with earthworms that you know about? Actually, I think there's a, a fair amount that's that's going on. It's not it's not with the tillage folks so much sure. as, sure. as some of the some of the soil biology. I I haven't kept up with the the details of it, but I mm-hmm. think I think the Georgia group is still. The soil ecology group down there is still doing some, and I think there are some some scattered studies around, but not not stuff that you'd see so much in the um, in the no-till research circles. Right. We for years we've said that no-till has kept sediment on the on the ground. We've reduced erosion, but now there's some work done or some talk that these earthworm holes or can could lead to more chemicals running off the fields what do you think well if an earthworm channel is open at the soil surface and you spray a chemical on the soil surface and then you get a big rain mm-hmm. then yes there's there's a chance that that the earthworm channel will carry whatever material that is down to sure. the bottom of the earthworm channel yeah. um so yeah on the worst case scenario the earthworm channel will get it into the soil and deeper than what we would 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 want it um there's a bit of a you know it's always more complicated of course sure. one is 
I'd still rather have it go into the soil than run off the soil. Right. Uh, because right. at least if it goes into the soil, it has a chance to maybe be absorbed or, or caught by some of the soil particles. The the other thing is that the earthworm channels are usually lined with cast material, at least part of the channel. And so that does tend to, to absorb some of the, the chemicals. But yeah, I mean, there's on balance, I think it's still a net positive, but certainly an earthworm channel um, can connect down to the water table or in some cases to, to a tile. And then if you put something on the surface and you get a big rain, then it can go right into the tile. Yeah, that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a compelling enough story to sure. say that sure. earthworms are bad and we should obliterate earthworms. Um, mm-hmm. What it means though, is that we may need to manage the way that we apply chemicals a little differently so that they don't tend to go into the earthworm channels in the first place. Right. Yeah. So yeah. for example, injecting manure versus putting it on the surface is one thing. Um, chemicals that you spray on the soil surface, well, you, most of the time you have to spray them on the soil surface, but don't do it right before you know it's going to rain, right? right? I mean, there's a few things like that where we can we can do a little better job, um, but but yeah, there's no there's no um, there's no absolute prevention of that possibility. Yeah. Another thing's come up is we've had some serious floods in recent years. What happens to earthworm numbers in floods? Depends a little bit on what time of year and what the soil temperatures are. Um, when when it's flooding in the winter and it's cold and they're not very active anyway, there would be less of an impact because they're not they're not respiring very much, so they don't need as much oxygen. And cold water holds oxygen, and and so there may or may not be a big effect if it's flooding when the temperatures are cold. If it's flooding when the temperatures are warm and the soil stays saturated for more mm-hmm. than a couple of days, then we, we could kill off quite a few worms in that case. I'm going to, I'm going to wind this up on uh, earthworms or anything we missed. That I, I want to talk to you about a couple other things, but anything we missed on earthworms you'd like to talk about? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Okay. All right, let's talk about the Midwest Cover Crop Council. Give us a uh, few ideas of what's going on there and who belongs, how you join, et cetera. So the the Midwest Cover Crops Council is basically includes all 12 states in the uh, USDA North Central region. So going from Ohio down to Missouri and through the Dakotas and um, uh, Kansas and Nebraska. So there's 12 states plus the province of Ontario, plus mm-hmm. we just admitted uh, Manitoba. So that kind of rounds out or maybe squares out <laughs> the, the Midwest region. The Anybody can be a member. We don't have, I mean, yeah, anybody can be a member. We don't have a membership uh, fee. We don't have a membership dues. It's not really membership per se, but if you're interested in receiving um, occasional emails, uh, we encourage people to join the listserv. The listserv mm-hmm. is not one that tends to um, crush you with 
dozens <laughs> of emails every day. Right. <laughs> Usually there's not too much activity there, but we, you know, announce when we have events coming up and then occasionally somebody will ask a question and there'll be a flurry of activity and, and so on. And then it dies back down again. But what we do, we have a lot of our mission really is to facilitate widespread adoption of cover crops across the Midwest. Uh, we began because we we knew that much of the cover crop work that had been done in the U.S. earlier was done in the mid-Atlantic or south. Um, and while we could learn a lot from that, it, it wasn't specific for the Midwest. So we started it because we thought we needed a regional emphasis on cover crops in the Midwest. Right. We started it actually a, a few years before the big interest in cover crops started peaking. Sure, so right. no, I know there that. were yeah. three or four of us that got together in 2006 and said, we need to know more about what everybody's doing. And it really could be really useful for water quality and taking up nitrates and so on. And then, um, and then three or four years later, things really started exploding with cover crops. So we had an organization that was kind of ready. It's um, the land grant universities are involved. So we have a representative from each of the, the land grant universities. Um, we have uh, industry involved, uh, NRCS, uh, non-NGOs, um, farmers, of course, <laughs> are a key part of, of what we sure. um, have and extension. We're really more of a extension outreach. Um, we we try to do some collaborative research and people get to know each other and then come up with projects that they can do across state lines and so on. But we're really much more into the education and outreach. So, for example, we have our third edition of our cover crop pocket guide that just came out in December. We're very proud of that. We encourage people to to purchase it at a bargain price of six dollars. Um, and it's got uh, a lot more content in it than our than our second edition even, and uh, all the major cover crops that are used in the in the uh, Midwest. We have online. We have a website with links to lots of different resources. We have a cover crop decision tool, which helps people um, if they don't really know what kind of cover crop maybe they want to use. It, it leads them through a very simple process of you know where are you. It takes the weather data from their county. Um, and asks about what cash crop they're growing and what goals they have. Like, do they want a nitrogen scavenger or do they want erosion control, things like that. And then it, mm -hmm. it basically ranks the cover crops for the goals that, that the uh, person has put in there. Um, we also have what we call cover crop recipes, uh, which are essentially our suggestion about how to get started with cover crops for people who are People who haven't grown cover crops before and are a little unsure about how to get started because there's so much information out there, it's our basically attempt to say, okay, here's a relatively low-risk way to, to get started. And we have those for every state, um, primarily for a corn-soybean rotation, but some of the states also have for um, after weed or after silage. So um, we, we always got questions from at, at various conferences from farmers saying, you know, there's so much information. I'm sold on the idea that I want to try it, but I don't know where to start. Just tell right. me what to do. And we finally decided, all right, well, for those who want to just be told what to do the first year, we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> talk about the Midwest, but you got, I mean, the, the rainfall in Indiana versus North Dakota is 
totally different. So I think it's neat how you get the weather data from the county and look at it and give a guy some ideas. Yes. And I yes. always re I yes. always remember at our first no-till conference in 93, Dwayne Beck from South Dakota got up and said, you guys here in uh, Indiana and Ohio no-till to get right, rid of the water. And we no-till in South Dakota to keep every drop that, that we can. can. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's right. <laughs> uh, the other thing I remember is uh, I'm a lot older than you are. I like to tell people I'm as old as dirt. But when I was growing up yeah. on the uh, growing up on the farm north of uh, Detroit, 40 miles, my dad was we we used cover crops and I can remember him seeding clover in the fall as a cover crop in the late 40s, and then it it, it wow. seemed to get it seemed to get away from us when we got commercial fertilizers and herbicides coming, yeah. and then it came back in the last few years, but. Yeah, I think that is part of part of what happened is is that commercial fertilizer came in and and then folks a lot of folks got away from you know like the small mixed farms so they didn't have livestock mm -hmm. so then they right. didn't have a reason to grow anything that was like a forage so uh, that that I think was unfortunate in the in what it did to soil health. Right, <laughs> been great, but uh, I'll let you go. Have a great Easter, and we'll put this up in a week or two, and I'll alert you when you put it up. If you want to, however you want to take it and put it anyplace yeah. else, it's fine. Okay, super. Thanks. It was very nice talking with you, Frank. That was Eileen Kladivko and Frank Lesser. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lesser one more time. Since today's No-Till Influencers and Innovators podcast deals with earthworms, I want to tell you about a book that we originally published in 1995 that is still the number one non-scientific reference on earthworms today. The title of our 112-page book is The Farmer's Earthworm Handbook with the subhead of Managing Your Underground Moneymakers. Featuring an extensive background on worms and practical ideas used by no-tillers in managing their underground livestock, this highly popular handbook has gone through numerous reprints over the past 27 years. 19 chapters delve into all aspects of on-farm earthworm management, from increasing worm populations, earthworm-friendly fertilization and pesticide application tips, manure management, seeding fields with night crawlers, the worms impact on various tillage systems, cover crops, crop rotations, and the major benefits of increasing worm numbers in your fields. To order your copy of our earthworm book, go to the No-Till Farmer website at notillfarmer.com. Then click store on the drop-down menu, and then scroll down to books, and you'll find this book and many others dealing with no-till management strategies. Here's one of my favorite quotations from the book. Earthworms are nature's tillers. They're cheap and do an excellent job. It sums up what you can learn from reading the 112 pages in this best-selling book. That concludes this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make the series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at lessermedia.com or call me at 
1-800-242-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about NOTO and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.